0: This is Erica Sears, your host of Big Tourism, a show where we look at destination management, case studies, trends, and thought leaders in the tourism realm. Now, I almost always have a guest on this show, which keeps things pretty interesting for me and, of course, for you. But today, we're going to veer off the path of normalcy and hike on over to the clearly marked trail of Erica's travel thoughts. I just got back from a two week trip, yeehaw, and now have over 3,000 photos, satchels of dried codfish, and of course, my travel notes. And I always travel to coastal destinations. Um, Which shouldn't be that surprising. I've mentioned on other episodes that upwards of 80% of all tourism happens in coastal destinations. Um, So no surprise that I also travel to those types of places. But when I come back, I always feel like my takeaways are quite applicable to the big tourism show, but also to my job here working for a tourism destination management organization on, on the stunning Oregon coast. So here we are. The country I visited has the second longest coastline in the world. It has over 60,000 miles. It has the largest cod stock globally, and it hosts the midnight sun every summer and the Northern Lights every winter. I am, of course, talking about Norway. I spent a few days with family in Oslo, then a couple days in southern Norway to hike Pulpit Rock. If you don't recognize the name Pulpit Rock, you should check it out. It is... a a stunning hike. And I think it's in the final scene of like mission impossible of a very serious action movie. Um, and then I spent really the bulk of our trip in the Lofoten islands up in the Arctic circle. And when I shared this with a few folks, like friends and colleagues, people were like, why those islands, why are you going to the Arctic circle in summer? And I was like, have you seen the photos guys? It looks like Norway and Hawaii combined and then like blew up together up in these, (laughs) up in these islands. So you have these tiny little red cabins, they're fishermen cabins known as roerbues. And they're just lined up in a perfect line against these gigantic sea cliffs, just these stunning cliff mountain formations shooting straight out of the water. And the water is Turquoise blue with white sand beaches, just like Hawaii. So, um, there actually were surfers there. There are some very popular surfing spots. Uh, and more really, like the Lofoten Islands have become a very visited destination, I think, for a lot of Norwegians. Um, there's a lot of people that drive there. It's like a hot spot to do road trips. The E10 is the scenic, the national scenic highway that drives through it. And I saw a lot of camper vans and families with all their camping stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, hey, I've been in Norway before. I have family there. I want to do something a little bit different. But as you all know, I love fishing communities. I love coastal communities. And tourism looked just a little bit different up there. So there were a few things that really stuck out to me um one was transportation is a little bit different than it here than it is here on the coast fishing you cannot talk about the lafoten islands without talking about the cod fisheries um and then a few other trends of of conservation versus farming fishing tourism how these different industries are playing together and then of course just a few fun things i did along the way so these islands are up in the very north The easiest way to get there is by an airplane. Um, So we flew from southern Norway up to the north. It was about two hours. Um, Other people do drive. There are ferries that take you to the islands, although in a lot of reviews, it was like, you better take some Dramamine because you will get seasick. (laughs) Um, And then once you're there, there is some public transportation but unfortunately, you know, when we look at sustainable tourism and we, we really want less cars on the road, of course, that's less carbon emissions, a number one reason people don't take public transit is because those buses aren't going frequently enough or because it's too hard to plan your trip. Like maybe the bus doesn't go where you want it to go. Um, and that's kind of what we came to the conclusion. Like a big part of these islands are traveling to these different fishing communities, checking out what they have, and they just could not make it work with the public transits. Um, and also do the things we wanted to do on the trip. So we rented a car. Um, I'm sure any of you listening that have been to Norway are aware of their insane tunnel system. Um, instead of going around mountain or over it, they just go right through it. And some of those tunnels last 30 seconds. Some of them last minutes. It, it's really impressive. And when we were in Southern Norway, um, to get to Pulpit Rock at one point, we were in a tunnel 300 meters under the sea, which is a very eerie feeling, but also quite efficient. Um, but yeah, it was really incredible. Again, you're driving on the E-10, Um, some of the tunnels are very artistic, and they're like partially open to the sea. So just very stunning and something that I don't often see in the United States. We were there, of course, during the summer. We were there in July, and so we got the summer experience uh, and the islands. And if you're like, well, what's the difference? During the summer, there is zero nighttime So we were there with the midnight sun, meaning it just kind of skirts along the horizon but never dips down. Um, It gave me a lot of energy, so I don't know if I could live like that all the time. Um, I was like peeking out of our curtain at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 5 a.m. just to make sure the sun was still there, and it was. Um, So this is really a very busy time. It's really easy to drive during the summer, obviously. There's plenty of daylight, plenty of things to do. There is, of course, a winter season for folks that want to come and see the Northern Lights. From what I heard, it is definitely a different time to travel, and from a tourism point of view, I have heard that there's issues with visitors coming to see the Northern Lights that are from countries um, that don't have snow, and so they don't know how to drive in snow, and that has been an issue for local residents. Um, And the other very exciting thing about sort of the winter spring season is that is when the fishing season is in full force. So that was the biggest thing we missed by going in the summer was that I didn't really get to be a part of the, the big fishing rush, which of course I love. So fishing in the Lofoten islands is a huge deal. Like I mentioned earlier, um, Norway has the largest cod stock globally. And a lot of that is coming from the Lofoten islands. Um, It's Norway's oldest export industry, dating way back to the Viking days. So it's certainly a big part of the culture and the infrastructure that you see when when driving around. And I thought it was very charming that um, in a lot of the material I was reading before I left there and things that I was reading while I was there, you you can still smell the fish. um, Because there were some remains and they dry the cod in these wooden um kind of pyramids and it's a very unique situation because they don't have to salt the fish they don't have to do anything except for hang them up because of how cold it is it's often below freezing during the winter and the salt in the air so when we were there there were still maybe some like heads hanging up on these racks and you could smell it and people said hey drying fish is the smell of money and that is something that people say here where i live in tillamook oregon land of Tillamook cheese is that you can smell the dairy cows. And people always say, hey, that is the smell of money. So I definitely related to that. Um, Additionally, I loved, and I'm sure other people have heard this, that a lot of materials about fishing, they say cod is king or in cod we trust. And so I was like, okay, we've got a marketer in the group. There's There's a clever person over there that's coming up with these terms. What I also found very striking about this cod fishery is its impact globally to different cultures. So prior to going to Norway, I had I kept seeing something about the codfish in Nigeria. I was like, what? So when I looked into it, um, it is in, I believe, some of Nigeria's national dishes and it is a really big part of that type of cooking. And I was like, but why? Those are so far apart. And upon further research, um, I found that during Nigeria's civil war, um, millions of people, more than a million people, were dying mostly from hunger. And because it was a humanitarian crisis at an unprecedented scale, there were relief agencies and countries from all over the world joining together to fly in emergency supplies. And Norway's contribution was stockfish. Because it doesn't need refrigeration, and it's full of protein and vitamins. And so the stockfish that they're sending and the way they package it up, in case anyone's unfamiliar, is that you can send it. It's like fish jerky. Um, and so I was like, wow, what an interesting you know, contribution. And Now it's such a big part of the culture of cooking in Nigeria. And I was reading this article about this famous Nigerian chef, and he said, I couldn't believe I couldn't believe that this wasn't a Nigerian food. I I always just assumed that this fish was a Nigerian fish, but it is being flown in from Norway. So that was one interesting tie of this fish to a different country and different culture. Another one that I didn't realize until after the trip was that I ate a lot of Italian food while I was there. And I was like, okay, I love pizza. I love pasta just like anybody else, but why am I eating this in the Arctic circle? And I kept asking people like, do you think this is weird? Do you think this is weird? Um, but apparently it's not. Um, because in 1432, uh, quite a while ago, a Venetian merchant trader, um, got his boat in a shipwreck situation, ended up spending several months with the Islanders of Lofoten And on his return to Italy, um, he was sharing, you know, this crazy account of his adventures, what he learned, and he brought back some stockfish. That, again, rich, nutritious, intensely flavorful type of jerky. And it was a hit. And it has found its way into regional dishes all over the country. One of the biggest stockfish festivals in the world is in Italy. So there's been this trade route between... Uh, Italy, and Norway over again the cod fish. So I just love the story of the fish itself, how it travels, but then even when it's processed, the different countries it goes to and the way that different people really rely on it for their cultures, even though it's a fish that didn't necessarily come from their countries. The last thing I noticed um, that I noted in my... I have terrible handwriting my travel notes, is this constant juggle that I'm sure many of our listeners experience, too, between different industries. So how does a traditional fishing village cope with increasing tourism? Um, I saw in a lot of in this like little history book I picked up um, that people were saying how important it is to preserve the fishing village environments in the hope and desire to live off of both fishing and tourism for many years. Um, There's one town that has started changing these old fishing infrastructure like processing canning facilities or whatever um, into galleries and restaurants. And from a tourism point of view it's very fascinating. I loved visiting those places but there has been a concern from local fishermen and communities that are saying hey, how are we going to continue doing our industry when our infrastructure keeps getting turned into tourism assets? Um, there's also some articles, more modern articles, more currents that I read that was relating the increasing tourism numbers to public safety concerns, impact on natural environments, a relation between the amount of people staying in those traditional fishing cabins, roar booths, and the lack of housing. So there certainly is this, this juggle between the traditional industries as well as tourism. But again, tourism relies on those traditional industries. Tourism, people are going there to see the fishing villages. Um, there's two or three villages where you park outside of them. You pay a small fine fee, like $10. And then you get to walk around and see what it looks like hundreds of years ago. Like they still have the bakery and the blacksmith and the cod oil factory. Um, I think it's very special for a lot of people to experience that, even a lot of Norwegian. One of the more touristy things we did while we were there is we went on what is called a silent Trollfjord cruise. So Trollfjord is this really incredible fjord, has a very narrow passage to get in. It's really difficult to see it by foot. And the way that, if I understand correctly, the way that the tectonic plates are pushing against each other, it forms these crazy rock formations that look like troll faces. And so uh, the the crew of the boat was sharing these myths and these stories about how when trolls, if they're caught in the daylight, they turn into rock. And uh, they told us a story about a King and his two daughters. And they were so fascinated by something that they didn't, They didn't hide in time so they turned into rock and you could definitely i could definitely see faces in the rocks it was very cool but another really interesting part of that tour was that they are electric boats and so that's really their you know unique selling point for their tours is that they offer silent sustainable and innovative experiences at sea um and that their boats are the most flexible boats in the world and can be recharged at any port The batteries themselves have enough capacity to run for eight hours at a speed of five knots, and they were built with recycled and recyclable aluminum, so they're lightweight and energy efficient, and they were basically a catamaran is what they are, so they have windows everywhere. It was a very smooth sailing process, Um, and I thought, wow, what an incredible experience for tourists when you want to go see outdoor recreation or do bird watching or just sightseeing, it was very cool that the boat was so silent and I thought it was probably also very nice for locals who lived in these awesome houses in the middle of nowhere, um, I took a lot of pictures, that they didn't have to listen to boats roaring by, that the boat was so silent and probably didn't impact them that much as far as the sounds pollution goes. Something that totally blew my mind, more so than the electric boats, more so than even probably the troll fjord or seeing salmon farming for the first time, I've never seen that in real life, was this wild story that they shared with us that is true. And they had pictures to back it up about how locals used to capture sea eagles with their bare hands. So... Okay, I think we all know what an eagle looks like. These ones are more like white and gold. And so for hundreds of years, they have done this traditional, I mean, they can't do it anymore, technically. But um, they traditionally hunted these sea eagles because farmers trying to raise sheep, which there are a ton of sheep on the islands, um, had to fight off these sea eagles who were trying to hunt their lambs. And so they were so clever, and I'm going to try to paint a picture for you. They would go up in the mountains and they essentially had two little dugouts for humans built out of the rocks with tiny little like windows, just a space in the rocks where they could look. And they had one um, person in one and one person in the other sort of facing each other. They would put bait out, so like intestines of sheep or something, attached to a string. The eagle would land They would slowly tug the string back towards their window, which is just enough for a human to to crawl through. When the eagle was close enough, they would reach out their hands, grab the eagle feet, and then pull them into their dugout. So the photos are in black and white. The eagle is eating. Then the eagle is face down with its wings out. And then the third photo is you can see its wings going into this dugout. I have never heard of that. Um, So I was just very fascinated with that and apparently in Norway they had a very similar issue that we did here in the United States with DDT affecting eagles bird their eggs. Um, So all of a sudden there were these protection measures on the eagles and the farmers could no longer hunt them. So we had this really great conversation on the boat about you know farming versus conservation. You know that's something that we see of course in the United States Um, But then of course, conservation versus farming versus then tourism, because the amount of people that go on these tours to see these eagles that are often sitting in pairs on these rocky formations is also bringing in a lot of money. Um, So I just really appreciated that conversation, especially coming from a tour guide. Uh, I like to have more real conversations like that when I'm traveling and get some insights. And again, I was just fascinated by how innovative these farmers were to, to capture these eagles that were getting their um, little lambs. So one of the last things I'll touch on here is, of course, outdoor recreation. That's what this region is really known for. There are stunning hikes um, anywhere you go, really, on the island, and that's why people go there, and that's why Instagrammers go there to get the shots. Um, so, yes, we did do a hike while we were there, and I know I'm not going to say this correctly, but it's spelled like Kival- Kivalvika Beach. Um, it is just this absolute stunning beach. You can only get to by hiking or if you had a boat, but it's still on kind of the far side of the island. You start in a parking lot. And by parking lot, I mean a field that a farmer is renting out to, <laughs> to visitors to park in. His young daughter was there like 13 collecting cash. So whatever, it was a good deal. You pay ten dollars for the day, you park your car in their field, they have bathrooms and fresh water. And then you and a hundred of your best friends are hiking through the fields, which is very common in Norway. A lot of the hikes that we went on, you were hiking through a farmer's field, and they would have signs that said, Hey, heads up, there's you know sheep roaming in this area. Um, they had like a double fence, so you'd open up one wooden fence, put yourself in a stall, open up the second wooden fence, I suppose as a way to keep the sheep in. Um, and then they had this like, I can only describe it as a boardwalk. It was like, not a boardwalk, a um, a plank, like walking the plank of a, of a pirate's boat or something. It was about a foot wide um and then it was up about two feet off the ground and so you followed the 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 plank all the way through these fields and at some parts up on the mountain and i thought it was genius because that area was kind of a marshland so people are keeping their feet dry but you also have all all the visitors so tons of people that are visiting this area are hiking on this boardwalk plank rather than just running around fields and having immense damage or immense impact. So I thought that was very clever and a good idea. If there's anybody else listening that is managing some type of park or natural attraction, um, Norway's got to figure it out. Anyways, you go through these fields, then you're going straight up the side of a mountain. I mean, straight up. And I feel like I'm like a healthy person, but it was not an easy hike. There were some people that were hauling their kids up on their back. I was like, good for you. Um, and then at the very top of this ridge of this mountain, there were like these stunning freshwater lakes. And then you start hiking down to the beach and it is as steep down as you can imagine. You're climbing over these boulders, but you're greeted by, like I mentioned at the beginning of this, these beautiful, clear turquoise waters, white sand beaches, uh, definitely worth the hike. I think from the top of the ridge down to the beach is only a mile and a half, but it took us hours to climb over the rocks, um, and I was pleasantly surprised to see some beach bums on on the beach down there. And by beach bums, I mean a flock of sheep just hanging out and rolling around in the sand the mamas had their bells on so you could hear them. Um, but I thought it was very cool. Just like she roaming freely, people checking out the water. There was someone that holds a surfboard down there. Um, so it was a very cool experience and it seems like you can find those anywhere on the Island, but you are going to hike straight up a mountain. And when you look at it online, they say, you know, easy to moderate for certain ones, like the one we did, And I could overhear other people saying, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way this is easy or easy to moderate. Like this is a very difficult hike. So I suppose levels of intensity are different depending on the country. And if you were going to Norway, uh, easy for them is not easy for maybe the rest of us. (laughs) Um, Something else that I had looked at before I left was this this right to roam that Norway has, and they've had for forever, (laughs) seems like, Um, and I think that has been abused a lot by visitors. So the idea that you can pitch a tent anywhere on uninhabited land, and what I had read was, um, you know, in the things things to do and not to do in Norway, people were like, hey, be considerate where you put your tent, duh. Uh, A lot of people were pitching them at, like, cemeteries um, or, like, too close to somebody's home, And so I really expected before the trip that when we got to these islands, I would see like inappropriate campers or something, you know, but honestly, I didn't see that. There were quite a few campgrounds there, um, and RV campgrounds on the islands and they looked very busy and they looked packed, but I didn't really see like tents pitched on the side of the road, like an insane amount. The beach hike we did is one of the places where they do allow camping. So I saw two tents down there, but I mean, just two tense. So I was surprised to see that. I think that is something that local communities have been um, working on was this right to roam and the impact that increasing visitation has had on their properties. There were a lot of signs that said no parking here or no camping here. Um, so that made it pretty simple. But other than that, I didn't see any trash. I mean, I didn't think the trails were that crowded. Um, so it was a really positive outdoor recreation experience. And I was there during peak season, you know, July. So. I was pretty impressed with that and the stunning views certainly left me breathless maybe more so because of the intensity of the hike something that did have a lot of crowds and also left me breathless but for the wrong reasons was european airports right now it is total chaos and i don't want to end my travel notes on a negative tone Um, But it it was a big part of our trip. So we unfortunately had two flights with Scandinavian Airlines. And I say unfortunately because uh, the day that we landed in Iceland, which was our layover, I highly recommend as a layover um, for transatlantic flights. Our flight from Iceland to Oslo the next day was supposed to be with SAS, Scandinavian Airlines. And that day that we landed was the day that their pilots went on strike in multiple countries. So the next, you know, we have a great day in Iceland. We saw, we went and did the golden circle. We saw waterfalls and, you know, hot springs, all these different things, Icelandic horses, great time. Then we pack up our stuff the next day. And when we get to the airport, I got an email like, Oh, sorry, your flight has been changed. So instead of a direct flight from Iceland to Oslo, a couple hours, I was going to have to fly out that night at midnight to Austria, spend a couple hours there, Uh, then Germany, spend a couple hours there, and then eventually make my way to Oslo after this crazy European layover situation. My travel partner was being sent on a totally different itinerary, and he was to go to the London Heathrow Airport. Now, if you've been seeing the news, Heathrow just capped their daily passengers' Um, And so they are affecting like millions of travelers this summer and early fall because of this, just the demand of travel right now that uh, Heathrow is saying that they can't keep up with the services in order to accommodate that. So there's really long lines. People are losing their luggage left and right uh, so it was a very chaotic time. We were able to just rebook our tickets with a different airline, uh, which was expensive, but worth it rather than <laughs> being flown all over Europe. The carbon footprint alone would have been insane. Um, but that is something that's going on in Europe right now. And I do have a lot of sympathy for people traveling with young families or or anybody that's being impacted by the, um, by the pilot strikes and, and by capping visitor numbers. But... I think it's also quite indicative of the amount of people that do want to travel in this semi-post-COVID. So that's about it, folks, as far as Erica's travel notes go from Norway. Uh, I think the Lafondan Islands are a very interesting case study. If you're a coastal management professional and you're looking at how to incorporate cultural heritage into your initiatives or programs, I definitely say check it out. If you're a destination management professional trying to mitigate visitor impacts, There are also some very interesting articles written about the impacts of visitors. I think most of them were pre-pandemic. Great one by Elizabeth Becker, who we've also had on this show. But yeah, outdoor recreation, cultural heritage, Italian food, (laughs) it was a great time. So looking forward to getting back to our regularly programmed episodes here on Big Tourism, a show where we're looking at destination management, case studies, trends, and thought leaders in this space, only on the American Shoreline Podcast Network.